0: If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 2, we see just a little, little, small, tiny something that gives us insight into, I think, something that's really profound. Luke chapter 2 verse 24 we'll kind of start on verse 21 but Luke chapter 2 verse 21 Mary and Joseph take baby Jesus and they take him to the temple and it says this and on the eighth day when it was time to to circumcise him it's the first time in three and a half years I've read that word publicly sorry um, and he was named Jesus and the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived And when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And then it goes on, it says, And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. It doesn't seem like much, right? So they have this son, the promised, kind of this promised child uh, that the angel promised that they were going to have, and they name him according to the promise of the angel. And, and then they go to do what the law of Moses requires, which is the Old Testament, um, kind of ceremonial laws. And, and they bring him to the temple, and they consecrate him. And then they give an offering. And what they offer is two young pigeons. Now, if we turn back to Leviticus, in chapter 12 of Leviticus, this is what we see. Chapter 12, verse 8 says, If she, the mother of a child, if she cannot afford a lamb, because the offering was supposed to be a lamb and a pigeon, if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons. So what it says here in Luke is according to the law, which is Leviticus, and it actually has it in quotes, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. The two young pigeons or two doves was the poor man's offering. It was the the offering that you gave if you were poor. And so when Mary and Joseph came and they they came to consecrate Jesus and present him at the temple, they brought with them the poor man's offering. And I've been thinking all week about that because it's just really been striking me and just kind of hanging in me with me. And this whole idea of we, we don't really recognize what was going on. We, we see it from a distance, third person, kind of look at the storyline unfolding in front of us, but we don't really understand experientially what's going on in the story that, that here's the, these two young kids in some sense, certainly Mary, Joseph was probably a little bit older, um, Mary was probably a freshman in high school, sophomore in high school, 13, 14, that age, right? Here are these, these this newly married couple, this young couple, Mary was probably young. Joseph was probably older. Uh, And they come because God has brought this child to them because he's chosen them. He's going to do something through them. His work is going to be accomplished through them. And they come, and all they have to offer is the poor man's offering. On one hand, they have the Son of God, on a spiritual level, on a, on, a, on a deep level, on a material level, all they have is the poor man's offering. And that's just really... that's just really struck me this week. When God tends to work, he tends to work bottom-up. And I don't think we really... Grapple with the implications of that. If Mary were to show up today, a pregnant freshman in high school, how would we feel about her? What would we be thinking about her? Especially if she came from a neighborhood in town that was known as, you know, that neighborhood. A reputation for being, you know, that's the low-income section of town. And you don't want your kids being friends with kids from that section of town. Um, how would we feel about that poor girl being pregnant and coming forward in in some sense saying, God's starting something new with me. Um, God's chosen me. He's going to work th- through me with, with this child. How would we feel? And I think it surfaces this, this latent thing that we've got going on Deep down, and that's that. Our expectations of the world don't coincide with the way God sees and works in and through the world. Okay, we we don't think anything good comes from Nazareth. Remember that scripture. The leaders of the day were, well, what good comes from Nazareth? It'd be like a a, a candidate for president from Oregon. You know what I mean? Like it would be weird to me, even if the governor of Oregon's running for president. Like really, you can't do that. Um, I don't know how we got a president from the from Arkansas, but um, you know, I mean, it's just something that just no, nah, it just doesn't work. You know, it's got to be New York or Texas or California. You know, I mean, what good comes from Nazareth? And you're not a priestly family. You know, you're not like this aristocracy. You're not leader. You're not you're not an influencer. You're not at the top. You're not someone that people are rooting for. There's something really interesting that we do. We don't want anyone to succeed until they get outside of a certain circle and they've ar- the ship has already sailed. They've already really, really succeeded. And then we flip 180 degrees and then we jump on the bandwagon and act like little kids. Okay? Okay. I mean, I've, I've seen this with Antioch in some sense. It's like people in this town that don't... The people that go here want it to succeed, maybe to some degree. You know, I think even people that go to this church don't want it to succeed because we're just a critical generation that wants everything to fail. You know, like... But people that don't go to this church don't want us to succeed because it's not their church. But then... When we do succeed in certain areas really well, all of a sudden the the tone changes. Or people that don't live in Bend and and we kind of succeed in certain areas, they get really, really, really excited about that. But not until we break out of like a certain circle. One of your friends, you kind of don't want them to succeed. You don't want them to outgrow you or do better than you. But if they were to radically succeed... If Jared had made the million dollars, I'm just kidding. Um, all of a sudden, you kind of put that critical bent to, uh, away, and then you get super excited about it. I mean, it's just, it's just a weird thing we do. Jesus, the whole prophet w- without honor in his own hometown, in his own hometown, people are like, we don't want you to become somebody. You're a nobody. You were born of that woman, married to that carpenter. You're a nobody, you need to stay in your place. Um, we don't want you to try and become somebody. And then the minute he walks out of that town, people are willing to say, he is this person. That's pretty exciting, and I want to I jump on that bandwagon. Just, there's just this interesting paradox. Does that make sense? We don't want something lowly in our midst to be something that we have to respect. Once it becomes outside of our circle and becomes great, then we get excited to respect it. We see Jesus as outside of this lowly circle, really high and worthy of respect, and so we get super excited and we come in and sing songs and we we pray and we're, we're Jesus freaks, you know? Yay, Jesus. Jesus, though, was lowly in his origins, where he got started, where he came from. He was lowly in his position. He was lowly in stature. He was humbled according to every definition there is. And God, working through him, raised a lowly man in stature um, to be above all things. God opposes the proud, things that appear big, but they're really not but God lifts up the humble, the greatest of which was Christ, who, being equal with God, says in Philippians, didn't consider that something to be grasped, but submitted and, and lowered himself, humbled himself. And then God, working through this lowly thing, made it great, made, made Christ great and raised his name above all other names. So here, here's the thing. God invaded this universe through a really, really humble, poor couple. He really started from the bottom up. What does that mean? I mean, there's something there that that we should draw out about God, about the nature of God, about Uh, this life about the world about God's will God's plan and I want to throw it out and just let you guys shout some things out you know just thoughts ideas about God having his chosen couple Mary and Joseph be so poor that they're offering the poor man's sacrifice they don't have any of the resources to really get on well they're struggling from the get-go what does that say to you just you extroverts out there just shout it out what does that say to you? God wants the glory. God wants the glory. He wants it to be obvious that it wasn't political power or influence or that Jesus had a big family and that kind of gave him his ride. Yeah, that God, God alone did it. He raised him up. What else? What's that? Hope. We'll come back to that one. What's that? He had to start down. To go up in some sense in the right path, he had to start at the beginning to go down to start up kind of this path rather than climbing the ladder kind of the American way, right? What else? Yeah. Yeah. They're they're not it says in, I think, Psalm 86, David prays, um, Lord, give me an undivided heart, an undivided heart. Um, and yeah, Jesus doesn't serve two masters. What else? A respecter of persons. He's not going to look down on other people that are less fortunate or poor. What, what's over here? Empathy. Yeah, that's kind of the same thing. Yeah. It's, it's really putting the value where the value is, huh? Um, there's kind of a lot of mirage. There's a mirage factor out there that uh, things that, that are shiny really are of value, but after about 30, 40 years, w- w- they're not. They're not of eternal value. A couple more. Don't have, don't have much to lose. Ability to go all in in some sense, to walk by faith, to risk it all. did you guys just feel like you were listening to the radio? <laughs> Eric's a radio voice. I was like, did they just capture that question on tape? I'm just kidding. Yeah. The, the, you're, we've, we've used this analogy before for Antioch, but if you don't back a truck all the way up, if you're going to pull a trailer, you've got to back the truck all the way up to the hitch and get hitched before you can drive off. You can't. Put a lot of time and energy to drive a foot within that hitch. Wait a few seconds and then drive off and get mad that the trailer didn't go with you, you know? Um, So in some sense, Christ is coming all the way down and identifying with the humanity that he's going to bring with him in some sense. Yeah. One or two more. Yeah. The first shall be last. and The last shall be first. John the Baptist said, "I, you know, I'm a, I'm a prophet. I've made a name for myself, but I must become less because Jesus must become greater. Ultimately, this thing that was low needs to be, be the thing that everybody looks to or the person that everybody looks to, the the prophet, the priest, the king. Um, certainly. One more. God values and honors humility. There's, I think all of those hit at kind of where I've been thinking this week. I mean, it's amazing how you guys all pulled out some of those things. But <sighs> The you know what a deist is, right? A deist is somebody that believes God is just really far off, wound up the universe, kind of wound it up like a clock and then kind of shoved it away. He's not a personal god. He's not a relational God; He's not interacting with this world. It's not a God that's going to answer prayers. It's, it's just purely kind of the first mover, Aristotle's kind of first mover idea. And, you know, it gave the push to everything else. And there's a phrase when you're a functional deist. You might say you believe in God in that God is a certain kind of way or, or a certain kind of belief system that way, but a functional deist is when you really shake it down, you live as if God really was far and had nothing to do with this world. Does that make sense? Functional deist. <clears throat> there, all these statistics and studies lately have been showing that Christians in America don't actually practice what they say they believe. Okay, I mean, just... In a rem- at a remarkable level, I mean, statistically, if you if you're into st- uh, if you're a stati- statistician, statistician, whatever, if you like the numbers, um, the these numbers are really remarkable. The, the disconnect that is that is manifesting itself between what Christians say they believe. I mean, just look you dead in the eye, say they believe. And and their practice, okay. And it made me think of something that when we that I kind of realized when we started Antioch, we when you start a church, you know, you're told you got to have mission, vision, values, like kind of all that kind of stuff. You know, um, we never really did any of that stuff well. But w- when we were looking at values, we kind of realized that just feels hollow. Uh, if you've been to a fast pass class, you've heard me say this before. I value a good cheeseburger. I do. I value a good cheeseburger. It doesn't mean it's going to guide my decisions, right? And so, writing a bunch of values felt hollow to me. It's like we could say a bunch of things we value doesn't necessarily mean it's going to govern our decisions and our actions. It doesn't just because we say we have a value doesn't mean it's a governing value. Does that make sense? Okay, So we use the word commitment, and we have at Anioc four commitments. Authentic spirituality, uh, Christ-centeredness, authentic spirituality, inclusive community, um, and that we're missional. We don't just have missionaries that go do the work. It's like we all have a calling. God has gifted us all to be involved in what he's doing. So we have these four commitments, and we're saying we have to, we have to take the things that not, are not only values— but they're things that we're going to leverage ourselves to. I mean, it's if anything happens, those things are going to happen. It's not just a soft value. It's a governing value. Does that make sense? Does, it, does that make sense? Okay. I think that's what's going on with Christians, is when Christians are talking about their beliefs, they're talking about things that they kind of know to be true, or that they know to be the right answers on a, a Sunday school quiz, or they, they know what they should value, or, I mean, they know, they know the answer. And so when you ask Christians what they believe, it's like, well, I know this is the right answer, and they kind of just give you the answer. But those, those values, those answers are not governing. They're just, I like cheeseburgers. They're they're things that they know they like or that sound good or sound radical or sound cool or sound orthodox or sound theological or or sound philosophical or or are going to make their mom or dad happy or wife happy or whatever. And so they, they know that this is what they value to be in their Christian set of beliefs, but they value it because it makes their Christian set of beliefs look right. They don't value it in the sense that this is the governing thing of my life. Okay, I mean, you tracking with me? Here's why I think that is. Because most of the beliefs would put us at a position far below where we're at. Most of what Jesus teaches, most of what Jesus valued, most of what God demonstrated in working through Jesus is less than the position in life, the place, the status that we now occupy. And this is a negative sum equation. If I really were to have my life governed by these things I say I believe, I will go down. My place, my status, my time, my energy, my friends, my, my plans for the future, my dreams, how easy things, things are, my comfort, whatever, whatever I have, whatever, whatever position I occupy, giving my life away, um, surrendering it all to God. Uh, man, can't do that. It'd be going backwards. And so we kind of separate these two things out and we go, I know what Jesus says. This is what he says. I know what the Bible teaches. Look at how good I am. I could I get, I get an A on that quiz. Um, the kids that I had in my high school ministry when I was a youth pastor that had the most struggle in life later on, like walking away from the Lord, were the ones that always had the first answer to the deep Bible questions. I mean, just you, you disconnect these two and go, oh, yeah, I know, what it, I know what it teaches. But there's nothing going on in your heart that's really accepting this because it's illogical, paradoxical, upside down, and no one in their right mind would want you to go backwards. And so the people that occupied a place above Jesus... The, leaders, the Pharisees, those that had influence, those that had money, really didn't jive with Jesus' values or his teaching or his authority. There's a, in your Bolton's. we've now gone three and a half years of quoting C.S. Lewis every single Sunday morning. Just in case you were wondering. It's kind of fun. I don't know how long we can go, but um, I was looking at the Bolton today and I kind of thought, huh, but here's a, uh, from C.S. Lewis' God in the Dock, and in the English legal system, the dock is where the defendant stands, okay? And so what Lewis was saying is we used to think that God was the judge and we had to answer to him, and what we've done, modern man has done, is we've reversed the two and we've put God in the dock, and he's on trial, and we as Christians or or people think he has to answer all these questions for us. That's what God in the dock means, but but Lewis says this, he says, The hard sayings of our Lord, the hard sayings of our Lord are wholesome to those only who find them hard. And I really, if you read Lewis, you begin to recognize that Lewis really wanted to arrive at where where Christ was commanding us to go. He had an amazing ability to just obey what Jesus said. I mean, if you look at his, his life, his testimony, his actions, it's phenomenal. And he was once asked by somebody, you know, how he did all this stuff. Um, and he just said, well, it's, it's a really peculiar thing. I actually believe that when Jesus said to do something, when he tol- tells us to do something in the Gospels, I actually believe he, me- he meant it. Because uh, you know, it's just a really kind of crazy thing. That's just how I live my life. I actually believe when Jesus said something, that He meant it. You know, and and Lewis is saying, look, if if you don't find this hard, then those hard sayings are just. I value a good cheeseburger. I value that this Jesus I wear a bracelet about, and that I talk about, and I call myself Christian. I, I value that He was radical. I, I like that he's cooler or more radical than other great religious leaders and you know, and, and I value all that about him but I don't really find it hard myself because I, I see a disconnect between the two. Does that make sense? Where Lewis was like, man, I actually find these things hard and it's wholesome to me because that's where I'm striving to get. Anyways, there's this disconnect and we're, we're functional deists. We don't, really believe that we're supposed to hitch up to the poor and take them with us, even though Mary and Joseph were poor. That God planted the seed that was going to redeem all humanity in the soil of poverty. We don't believe that God would really push us down before we could start back up. It seems like a waste of energy. Why doesn't he just take us where we're at? Acts 26, Jesus says to Paul after he's in the, if you know the story, Saul, who later becomes Paul's, in the desert, he's going to persecute Christians. Jesus interferes, he intervenes with his life. And this is what Jesus says, verse 16 Now get up and stand on your feet. Now get up. And stand on your feet. He's face down. Abject humiliation. Brokenness. And Jesus says, now get up. Stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to point you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people because they're not going to like you just like they don't like me. I'm going to rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles and I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn from the darkness to light and from the and it keeps going and that they would eventually be sanctified by faith the passage in Isaiah if you've ever read it Isaiah chapter 6 God is like man look at what's going on I need to send somebody who am I going to send and Isaiah the prophet kind of says here I am send me and, and there's this dream where his lips are purified by a hot coal, where in some sense, you know, he, he who's not perfect, not able to be used, is purified so that God can use him. When Jesus had first called Peter and, and some of the early disciples, they are out in a boat, and Jesus does a miracle and shows that he has power over nature, okay? I mean... Power over nature. There's only one thing that has power over nature. And Peter falls down and says, I'm, I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy for this. And so we, we don't want to be lowered because, man, it's just so against our nature to go backwards, to accept less when we can have more, to, to humble ourselves, to all these different kinds of things. We resist it we resist it. And and I think those of you that shouted out things are exactly right that God starts here because it can actually move forward because it actually understands humility, it actually understands surrender, it actually understands solidarity with all mankind and that the poor are not less valuable than those that were born with money or influence or the God-given intelligence to work themselves from poverty to riches or or whatever. And and God takes the lowly things, and when they see Jesus, they don't think somebody that's trying to encroach on our system and lessen our life or, or our value, we have to resist this. When they see Jesus, the poor, they really hear good news. And they get super excited and Jesus talks to them in the Beatitudes and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are all these other things. To you who have nothing, I'm everything. And isn't this a wonderful thing? To those of you that have everything, I am the thing that stands in judgment on that. That you first have to rid yourself of what you think is important or valuable before you can really enter in and follow me and have this life with me. On that note, one of the greatest blessings that could be happening to us right now would be exactly what's happening to us right now. That Our place is being rocked, that your job title went down from what it used to be, that your income went down, that your security in your home is no longer as great or not even existent at all, that that when you come up to people, you don't feel like you have this status that makes you lofty and and they're going to value you because you're coming in at this level. You now feel insecure. We begin to realize that things that seem rock solid are are literally, they literally can be eroded just in a blink of an eye. And we begin to understand that passages in the Bible really know what they're talking about. That we can build our house on a rock, which means a spiritual foundation, which is Christ. That's the whole parable, if you remember the the rock and the sand. And if we build here, it's never going to be shaken. Because no matter what your bottom line income is or your health quotient or anything as it rises and falls, your grounding is secure because you've elevated yourself to what Christ has to offer and it's hard, but it's lasting. And then there's people that go for something that cannot last and they build on sand and they trust in it and they glory in it, but it literally can be wiped away just like that and we've experienced that and i'm not making light of any of any of that i'm not minimizing the pain or the struggle of any of what's going on in our culture right now but we are we are this people we have been that people and maybe just maybe god's going to use some of the trials or is using some of the trials that we're collectively going through or individually going through to bring us to a position to where he can then say to us, stand up. Um, I've brought you low, or you've been brought low, or you are low, and you're right where I want you. Because I work from the bottom up. I sent my son into a home that's poor. Everything I always do starts down there. I'm down there. My son lived with those people and was down there. And now that you're down there, get really excited. Because if you are willing to jump by faith to where I'm at, this can be really good news. Um, I can take you. I can use you your creativity, your job, your artistic abilities, your relationships, your knowledge, your capacity, I can take that. And instead of using that to get ahead in life and to have place, status or position, now now that you really want to be with me or that it's easier to be with me, I can take that. I can use that. Um I, sometimes, I always talk about, I really, my dream for Antioch is that we would, we would make an impact. We make a dent in the world globally through this church. I get laughed at 50% of the time by that. I mean, I can see it in people's eyes. It's not always like an audible laugh. Um, but what gives me comfort in that whole thing is God can absolutely use something as lowly as this church in Bend, Oregon to change the world. He absolutely can use us. The question of whether he will use us or not really has to do with how usable we are and whether we're really willing to to fall on our faces, surrender, submit, cry out, and and entrust all that we have, all that we are, to a God that can then take and work magic and multiply those loaves and do miracles with our little Um, so that it slowly grows and actually makes an impact in in people's lives around this world. It's, It's not at all illogical. There's a lot of people that wouldn't want it to happen or think it would be weird until all of a sudden it does happen, and then because we're so addicted to place, we'll turn right around and jump on the bandwagon. But I just, I just... I can't stand the thought that we're going to gather every week and we'll talk about once a year things like a potluck and a baptism. And the, the majority of us, if I didn't have to be there, I'd probably be in the same boat where we're like, ah, do I want to go? I mean, it's kind of like right after nap time. It's beautiful outside. I don't know. I mean, there's other things I could do than really, really, really be a good teammate to the church God, God's put me in. You know, I don't want to spend the thirty bucks to go to family camp, even if it's just for Saturday. Um, I got I got to mow the lawn. You know, I mean, I would be right there too. I'm kind of required to be there, so I, you know. But if I wasn't, I can't stand the thought of thinking that we're going to just show up, not really invest, not really care, just be disconnected from what we say we believe. How we act is just the herd mentality. We're going to just do what we see everybody else do because we acclimate to culture. And that these things functionally don't interact. When, if we actually really got the good news, if we really were willing to be last so that we could be first, if we could be upside down, paradoxical, illogical in our thinking, if we could really go all in and value the spiritual things, the eternal things, not the material things, if we could really do that, surrender to that, let God work in and through all of us, this community, this family, this team could literally be unbelievably cool. And I just can't stomach the thought that week after week, we could maybe just let it stay American instead of hoping and dreaming and praying that it become... So much more. Church with a capital C. Um, And just staring at this picture in my mind of Mary and Joseph coming with two doves and being treated by the people in that temple in their minds, graded out as having a low place. Ah, it's a poor couple. You know, they're not that important, they're not that valuable. I mean, that picture just does something inside of me. You know, all the things you guys shared are things that I think we really need to wrestle with. Are we really willing to digest that, embrace that, act on it, become who we say we are, do what we say we believe? Father, this is not about... All of the flashy stuff, all the stuff that's seen, even artwork that's flashy isn't about that. It's about a story of a young man taking the gifts you gave him and taking a whole summer and setting it aside, his life, his time, his energy to give those gifts back to you than to, to pursue other options in life. Father, as we deal with difficult times, as we have friends that deal with difficult times, let us ask for more than just relief from the pain. Let's not just pray for some kind of a salve that just makes it easier. Father, we know that, that pain is real and we know that it leads to a cry. We know that you care about the pain, but let us hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let us hunger and thirst to be with you, to be known by you, to be where you are. Let us just desire something greater than a return to what is comfortable in our life. Just ground our hope, our hope in the afterlife, our hope in heaven, our hope in spending eternity with you. Ground it, grow it. Let us bank everything on that. Give us the ability to let go of the things that we cling to. Give us the ability to encourage each other, be good family members and good teammates and good a good church community to one another. That we actually would be bought in and vested. Let this church bring you glory, not because of any of the stuff on the on the surface. But because we really are humbled, we really are willing to do what you call us to do, regardless of how tall it is, regardless of how much sacrifice is involved. We pray that in Christ's name.